Welcome to Bioethics on Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Care, or POLST, is gaining support across our nation. But what is POLST? What issues does it address, and what legal challenges does it pose? Attorney Cameo Anders returns for a second podcast to explain what POLST is and how it relates to both the living will and the healthcare power of attorney. She also discusses legal challenges with POLST, focusing on decision-making authority and medically-assisted nutrition and hydration. Hello, Cameo. How are you today? Hi, Joe. I'm doing well. Thanks. So, Cameo, what is POLST and what issues does it address? Sure. So, POLST is Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Different states have different acronyms, so you'll see POST, MOST, MOST, but basically all of them are that transportable physician order. Um, And it's going to address the same issues that a living will and a healthcare power of attorney are going to address. What should I do at the end of life? Do I want full treatment? Do I want something less than full treatment? Do I want comfort care? You know, with that, um, do do I want a DNR? Do I want artificial nutrition and hydration? Do I want antibiotics and dialysis and uh, all of these different options. So that's what Pulse addresses. How is it different from a living will then? That's an excellent question. And I think Pulse causes some caution uh, because it's new. And, and you're right. How is it different? We have these other things. What does Pulse do for me that's different? So if I can try to sort of sum up what Dr. Susan told She's one of the co-creators of the Pulse Paradigm. And she, I think, explains it really well in saying that it activates the advanced directive. So if we talk about a healthcare power of attorney, because I, in my mind, the healthcare power of attorney is the advanced directive that you want. Right. So the Pulse document is going to take that healthcare power of attorney and it's going to activate it. It's going to put it into action with a physician order. um, For example, if the EMT comes to your house, you've just had a heart attack, they're not going to not do everything they can unless there's a doctor's order that tells them not to. So that's where the pulse steps in and says, this patient is at the end of life, this patient has um, cancer, this patient has a DNR, just make them comfortable. So the difference it seems to me, from what you're saying, is that POLST is a medical order versus, a, say, something a living will, which is a legal document. Correct. It is a medical order. Some states have um, enacted it through legislation, and so then POLST becomes a legal document for them. But I just want to reiterate that the intention of POLST, according to its co-founder, is to activate that advanced directive. So the confusion with Pulse in my mind is, is this another advanced directive? Does this replace a power of attorney? And the answer is no, it it activates it. So create your power of attorney, and then when you reach that point where a Pulse would be useful, and there's certain safeguards you want with that usefulness, 
then it becomes a legal document in the states that have enacted it through legislation. Um, but it, it doesn't replace, it's not intended to replace like your power of attorney document. Um, this may be a slightly unfair question because I know you're, you're, you are in uh-huh. South Dakota and you're very familiar with the laws of South Dakota, but can you tell us where the post form is legally recognized in the United States? And is there one uniform document or do we have multiple different documents? Well, being from South Dakota, there's a little bit of, I'll call it pride, because when you pull up the uh, POST website, we're like the only white state left. So when you start sort of implementing a POST paradigm, you turn your state turns pink or striped or some other color. And so South Dakota is, you know, one of the last states standing, if you can say what that. What do you mean last state standing? From POST's perspective, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Right. So from... From the perspective of those who want to implement polls across the nation, that's a bad thing. Um, from the perspective of being cautious of what we're using as advanced directives or as physicians' orders, or you know, this is this is a paradigm that has gotten criticism, but I think mm-hmm. at the same time can do a lot of good things because we've seen, you know, in that bubble of surrogate decision making. There are a lot of issues that come up, and and so to continue to try to solve those issues is a good thing. And I think that's what POLST does. It continues to try to solve these issues. So um, to go back to your question, you know, which states have enacted it, I think almost all of them to a certain degree. And right right now I'm a part of an advisory board, and we're considering POLST and drafting some documents. and, and trying to solve this issue also to the best that we can. And also try to, to formulate a post form that's, that's congruent with Catholic teaching. That, that's you know, one, of the, it's one of the criticisms that, uh, that the post paradigm has received. Yes. So, and I would say not even just Catholic teaching. I think one of the, um, you know, going back to artificial nutrition and hydration that we had talked about earlier, you know, that's, that's an issue with the law as well as Catholic teaching. And so yep. to try to understand what can we do with these, especially artificial nutrition and hydration, and still be consistent with our laws um, is a big issue. I'd like to go back and kind of ask some of the same questions that I asked you in the previous podcast about advanced directives. So does a person need a post? Well, I think if we look at what a post is intended to do, um, then the answer to that depends. You know, is the person at the end of life? A post is intended for an end of life situation when, according to a podcast that I had listened to with Dr. Susan Toll, they're reasonably projected to die within a year. So if a patient is at that stage, a terminal stage, then look to the next question, do they have an advanced directive already? If POLST is supposed to ad- activate an advanced directive, then make sure that that advanced directive is in place. And and I would say not just advanced directive, make sure you have a healthcare power of attorney. You've named an agent because one of the big issues with POLST is if there's a surrogate appointed and the patient is already incapacitated, what power 
does that surrogate have? Well, if you don't have state law to define that clearly, or if you don't have a document to define it clearly, really Pulse is, is questionable. So have your advanced directives, appoint your agent, and make sure that if you do create that Pulse, the agent is the same agent. So I'm going to say that again. Make sure that you have the advanced directive, appoint the agent, and if you have a post, make sure that that agent is the same person. Otherwise, you end up with kind of this legal quagmire. Um, so just going through that, are you at the end of life? Do you have an advanced directive that you want to activate with doctor's orders? That's the problem is, you know, you're going to sort of leapfrog into the future and resolve issues that normally should have a benefit burden analysis done at that time. So are you at a point where you can make your benefit burden analysis and know that that's going to be the same analysis in the future? Um, if you are a frail elderly person, terminally ill can cancer patient that's reached the end of their life and you want comfort measures only, then it's, it's possible that that person um, pulse could be useful for them. You know, so to answer your question, do you need a pulse? I think you have to answer, ask all those other questions first. If pulse is a medical order, can it be overridden? So, yes, a patient can always override their own decision. So, um, as long as that patient has capacity, it can be, they can make another decision. It can be overridden by the patient always. Um, when that patient doesn't have capacity, you know, then there's a, a muddy area. Can a surrogate override? And, and if you have a power of attorney enacted and that surrogate is the agent appointed, you know, then that's a clear legal question. The agent could override the Pulse document. Um, you know, so once again, just saying the same thing. That's going to solve a problem right there. If you have your power attorney and if you have your agent appointed, then you know the power that a surrogate has under a poll because it's the same person. I just want to, if I could just clarify that a little bit. Are you saying, because I've, I've heard different things about this and, that, and that's, that's why I'm, I'm kind of pushing this a little bit. Are you saying, so if I have someone designated as my healthcare power of attorney and I have a pollst and I express something in a pollst, the healthcare power of attorney can override that? I think that that is unclear. And I think that's one of the downfalls of Pulse is that it's unclear. And so the Pulse document itself, I don't think it makes it clear. But I think that if you have your power of attorney and you have your agent appointed, and then if you create a Pulse, and in the Pulse document, it has a place for like a healthcare representative or a surrogate. Make sure that that surrogate is the same person appointed in your healthcare power of attorney. Then I think it's very clear that the surrogate in the Pulse has the power that the power of attorney gives them. Does that make sense? Like you're creating a, a, a twin, um, you know, you're, you're creating a plan, not two separate documents that are going to conflict each other and leave everyone in confusion. 
Yeah, I, th I think one of the big things with, with Pulse, and, and we've been dealing with Pulse here at the NCBC for a while as well, too, and and you know one of the things one of the things that you're saying is is, is very clear that you know if you have other documents, make sure that your pulse and your other advanced document your other um, advanced directives, make sure that they are saying the same thing. You know, make mm -hmm. do you know make sure that they don't contradict each other. But I, I think you know as, as you said, I, one of the real questions that people are asking with pulse, and there are a number of questions that people are asking with pulse. But one of them really is is well, ultimately, who is the decision maker? Um, you know, you have a patient who is not capable of making decisions, um, and they right. you know they've expressed something, and the power of attorney. Um, or the family member, whoever's been designated to be the decision maker, says, eh, "This is this is not, you know, this, this for whatever reason, this is what we don't. I don't think this is in the best interest of the patient." There's a lot of question about, well, you know, which takes precedence here? Is it, you know, is it the post form? Is it the healthcare power of attorney? What is it? And I, I think that lack of clarity, um, which which you mentioned, is is one of the real challenges um, facing post. I think you're exactly right, Joe. And, and that lack of clarity is going to cause a lot of problems. So the question is, if I can, um, you know, bring something to the table, steal an idea from one of the great minds of our time. Sure. Uh, Pope, Emeritus, Pope, uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, um, in his Jesus of Nazareth trilogy that I'm reading for a separate thing, he brings to the table this historical critical method that is controversial um, when trying to interpret scripture. And he says, let's take this and let's critique it, but also let's harvest from it the good that we can. I think if we take that idea and we apply it to Pulse and we critique it, because there are some very, like you just pointed out, good reasons to critique it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, how does it it, there's ambiguity, there's um, a need for some conscience exemptions, for some human dignity language, there's a need to clarify that artificial nutrition and hydration is ordinary care, unless otherwise overly burdensome. You know, there's, there is a very necessary um, critique that needs to happen. But then there's also some good that can come from a doctor's order that activates the power of attorney document. Um, you know, that good being the terminal patient who needs that DNR order um, and, and really wants to clarify, I only want comfort care. And comfort care at their stage in life is a valid request. It's consistent with Catholic teaching. Um, you know, there are those situations where a Pulse document can really be something that's good for that patient um, mm -hmm. with the proper safeguards. So... I, I don't know. If, I don't remember what your question was, but or if I'm even answering it. But I think you're exactly right. Like we need to. This this document is in almost every state, and you know we are going to come across it. It's going to be. It's going to be asked. Should I use this document? What? How can I use this document? And I also think that there is a need for that power of attorney document when it's created to have some teeth to it, um, you know, and, and a doctor's order that activates a power of attorney document with proper safeguards could be a very useful tool. 
I know in our previous podcast when we were talking about advanced directives, we we spoke about uh, nutrition and hydration or medically assisted nutrition and hydration. I'd like to come back um, to that a bit uh, with with Pulsed and. Again, from a legal perspective, um, within the Pulsed form, one of the critiques of Pulsed, uh, at least from the Catholic perspective, is that it allows patients the option of just a flat-out denial of any kind of um, medically-assisted nutrition and hydration, and right. which obviously is is going to um, is going to conflict with Catholic teaching. So, I'm wondering if if you could comment on that. Um, have there been any discussions, uh, particularly in South Dakota, or maybe on a larger level, conversations that you're involved in, where Pulse supporters are addressing this issue, or uh, what can be done to try to overcome this um, this challenge with the Pulse form? Mm-hmm. First of all, I think you're right. It is a big challenge, and it is a big danger. If someone uses a Pulse form, and artificial nutrition and hydration can be removed at any time, especially because the form allows a surrogate to make that decision or in some cases, you know, no signature necessary at all. So who's making the decision? I think there is a big danger in both, both ethically and legally um, with artificial nutrition and hydration. I'm really proud of South Dakota and the conversations that we've had. Um, And I have to say, you know, we, we stole a lot of ideas from Louisiana, so I should give Louisiana credit here. Um, but if you look at the Louisiana document, under artificial nutrition and hydration, it treats them as ordinary care. And there's a presumption that they are always used unless, you know, the language I think is like otherwise burdensome or it's consistent with the Catholic teaching. And so on our draft document, we do the same thing with artificial nutrition and hydration, not you know, I say it's consistent with Catholic teaching, which is great, but from a legal standpoint, it's consistent with what the law needs to keep this document from slipping into allowing, you know, euthanasia, um, as we discussed before, like intent and cause. So if, I don't think it's very difficult to add that safeguard into the artificial nutrition and hydration section and say, this is always considered ordinary care unless, and then list you know, it's not being assimilated by the body. It's um, overly burdensome such that it outweighs any benefit that's being provided. And the person is, you know, death is imminent or it's no longer prolonging um, the person's life. Or, you know, it's it's easy to insert that language. And I think it's necessary to insert that language. And that language is almost verbatim from Directive 58 of the Ethical and Religious Directives. So it's, I hear what you're saying. Um, yes. Next question. Have there been, to your knowledge, have there been any legal challenges with Pulsed as a whole? Yes. There, well, Pulsed is new, so I don't think there's been as many legal challenges as we're going to see. Um, but I think that the legal challenge of, maybe not specifically to Pulsed, but the legal challenge to directives in general um, exists. For example, in Maryland right now, there's a, a legal challenge to a most document, MOLST, which is medical order. So almost exactly the same thing, um, the same paradigm. And it wasn't a challenge to the document so much or to the authority of the document, but a challenge 
to the healthcare provider that didn't follow the document. And so then, you know, yeah, very interesting because if, um, if a healthcare provider can be sued for not following a pulse document or a living will or a healthcare power of attorney document, which this is gaining uh, speed, if I can say it that way, mm-hmm. the um, objection is a wrongful life. Like I should have died. You should have let me die. And so now I have this wrongful life. And once wrongful life lawsuits gain um, popularity, I guess, we're going to see them everywhere. We're gonna, you know, and we, and we already do see wrongful life documents, or I'm sorry, wrongful life lawsuits with, you know, genetic testing, and you didn't right. catch this anomaly um, that was my child has. And if I had known about it, I would have aborted my child. Yep. Or, you know, we, we see this uh, dangerous legal precedence. Um, and it's not just with Pulse, it's, it's with advanced directives in general. I think it brings up a really important part as we are implementing these documents, especially through the law, being clear that this doesn't give someone a wrongful life standing to sue. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting. And it's, um, you know, going back to your question then, is, are there, you know, are there legal issues, other places or lawsuits, you know, on that issue of surrogate, uh, you know, authority and who takes precedence? I think that unless it's very clear and unless the Pulse document is activating the already in place power of attorney, we're going to have lawsuits there because that's ambiguous. You know, it's ambiguous which surrogate, if they're different, gets to make the decision. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I see a lot of unclarity, but I think that if Pulse is used how it's supposed to be used, where it's activating the document, I know I keep saying this over and over again, so hopefully, you know, it will, by the end, if nothing else, people know, okay, have a power of attorney, create an agent, and if I use polls, make sure it's the same person. But if it's used in that order, I, I think that that really clarifies a lot of those ambiguities. And if it's used with safeguards, you know, the safeguards of making sure that it has signatures, making sure that it, it identifies that this complements the power of attorney, making sure that artificial nutrition and hydration is always, always, always ordinary care, unless otherwise medically unnecessary, according to, you know, the same thing that we see within Catholic teaching, those, those three things. Um, if we implement those safeguards, then I think that also takes out a lot of the illegal issues that are going to arise. Other than someone who is not at the end of life, as you mentioned earlier, are there any situations where you would counsel a person to not complete a post? Yes. I think if you are not at the end of life, don't complete a post. And I think, you know, that's, that's taking that right from the, the co-creators of the post paradigm. This is not for everybody. It's right. only for those people who are at the end of life. And then, you know, adding my own to that, This is, you know, the danger with Pulse is that you're leapfrogging into the future and making a decision, and that decision is supported by a doctor's order. So right on it, it says, you know, do this first and then ask a doctor. You know, so so that's a dangerous thing to say unless you have 
a very limited spectrum of decisions that you're making, and they can be made right now. I think the only time that you find yourself in that situation is if you are at the end of life and you're able to do those burden-benefit analysis then and there. Um, does that make sense? Yep. Yep. It makes, makes very good sense. What final words of wisdom would you like to share with us as we, as we conclude our podcast today? Critique that pulsed paradigm. Um, may, you know, if you are in your state and have had the power to help sort of guide the legislation or guide the drafting of the document, then, you know, please implement safeguards that are going to make the law easier, but also ethical considerations easier. So some of those, you know, we glean from the bishops that have already made statements on these, um, you know, such things as requiring the signatures. One thing that I didn't mention was the, the constant review of the document. So on the back of, I think it's Louisiana's form, there's a chart there. And it says, you know, the last time this was reviewed was, and it, you fill in the chart. And, and that document itself says, this should be reviewed every change of care setting, every, you know, every um, transfer. And so review the document and make sure there's a place to note those reviews. You know, make sure that it reflects the current conditions and prognosis and needs of the patient. Be sure that it protects and respects conscience objections um, and that it's consistent with that advanced directive. So I can't say that often enough. Consistent and appoints or, or names that same agent. Um, you know, at the same time that we're critiquing it, we can also harvest the good from it. And when those patients are at the end of life and want comfort measures only, you know, let's, let's help them express their wishes well and with the proper safeguards. That's a great wrap-up and summary. Thanks, Cameo. Yes, thank you, Joe, and have a great rest of your day. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.